2: Truth and Movies. On today's programme, Houston has a problem in Whitney, Kevin McDonald's biographical documentary about the iconic 80s pop star. But both of them were doing drugs. Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd are a pair of unlikely dads faced with unplanned parenthood in Ideal Home. We can't have a kid. We couldn't even handle that Yorkshire Terrier. And for Film Club this week, we look back at Michael Cimino's Vietnam War epic, The Deer Hunter, just in time for its 40th anniversary re-release.
3: You want to play games? All right, I'll play them games.
2: All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. And we're back. It's Michael Leader here once more, sitting across from Hannah Woodhead. Hello. From Little White Lies. Hannah, how are you doing this week?
3: Yeah, I'm good. I'm just about hanging on in this unseasonable heat.
2: Yes, exactly. And we're just about hanging on in these counter-programmed films during the World Cup. Let's see how we fare this week.
3: It's a quiet week, isn't it? I heard last week was the second worst weekend of the year at the box office. Yikes.
2: I wonder what the worst worst of the year is. Yeah. And sitting next to Hannah this week, we have a fresh face. We have Rowan Woods, film programmer, development executive at BBC Films. Rowan, welcome to the show.
4: Hi. It's so nice to be here. (laughs) I've been a long time listener.
2: Well, we'll have to see how you uh, fare with Whitney and Ideal Home shortly.
4: Oh, God, that sounds like a threat.
2: (laughs) No shame, no shame, no judgment. We'll just uh, get on with it. Excellent. And let's dive straight into the films. Uh, First up, a documentary, Whitney.
0: They showed up at events together, play-acting the perfect family. Me and my brother, we took care of Whitney but both of them were doing drugs. Whitney believed that if she got married, she'd live happily ever after. The things Chrissy had to endure, no one would ever imagine. Everything began to spiral out of control. Uh. I feel like you and me against the world. Sometimes it feels like just me against this whole world.
2: And that was a clip from Whitney, director Kevin Macdonald chronicling the life and career of the iconic pop star from her era-defining success in the 80s and early 90s, right through to her tragic death in 2012. Along the way, McDonald interviews members of her family and those who knew her well in order to get closer to the truth behind the troubled star. So, Rowan, this is the second documentary about Winning Houston in the space of a year. Uh, Nick Broomfield's one, kind of in me, came out last year. Do we need a second one?
4: Well, I think, I mean, if you'd have asked me maybe six months ago or even a week ago before I'd seen both of them, I'd have thought there'd have been absolutely no need for two. And I Mm. still sort of think there is no need for two. Broomfield's doc sort of follows the same trajectory of kind of rise, drugs, tragic fall. Mm. And it relies very heavily on footage that was shot at the time of one of her final tours, to the extent actually that that Nick has a co-director credit with with the director of of that documentary. But Nick Broomfield never quite sort of properly gets under the skin in the way that Kevin MacDonald does. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has fantastic access and it's it's a doc that's um, approved and sort of sanctified by Whitney Houston's family, which can often be a red flag, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think something he does so well is um, use that access to his advantage. So he really digs deep and gets... Quite sort of uh, significant revelations from the family members, Mm -hmm. and and paints a picture that ends up feeling so comprehensive, but at the same time, um, he manages the balance incredibly deftly of not turning it into hagiography, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't shy away from uh, what's quite dark and and difficult territory, and you end up getting a picture of an icon that is that is fully rounded and you know as troubled um, as she was brilliant. I think it's also a really glossy good looking really film is, isn't yeah. it it's released by altitude who are the same uh, distributors behind the amy doc, mm-hmm. and it certainly feels like it's aiming to sit in the same sort of space and do the same kind of business as amy did and it's a doc that feels like it needs to be seen on the big screen
2: it really is for those musical moments but also with some of the archive footage was well, one central bit of footage they use which is the how i know music video which is on the poster which when it's remastered and cleaned up for modern day eyes, just looks so gorgeous, the colours that pop.
4: Absolutely. And Kevin
2: Macdonald, he's of course an Oscar leveled documentary filmmaker, but also a fictional filmmaker. He won Oscars for One Day in September, but he also directed Touching the Void. And off over on the fictional side there was The Last King of Scotland, the Idi Amin mean film. But the way that he weaves Whitney Houston into the cultural fabric of 1980s Reagan-era America is so deft and so well-edited. Absolutely. And the way that it plays off her as a pop culture icon and then the woman behind the icon. Yeah. To be honest, from my point of view, I think, I've said in this podcast before that I'm still I'm a bit curious about the relevance of these comprehensive megadocs that seem to want to sum up an entire life and career in two hours. I don't know whether that's something we can really do any more when there's Netflix when there's the broader context of television and in this one I think the focus that he brings you know, that Kevin Macdonald brings as a journalist as a filmmaker is what was the damage what was in her life that led to her in later life falling and spiraling into drugs after such promise and such a clean pop image early on.
4: Absolutely and I think he comes up with a very compelling argument for Mm -hmm. that. I mean, I don't know whether we want to get into those details. It's sort of a bit of a a spoiler, although those revelations have been fairly widely discussed Mm -hmm. now, but I think maybe we'll we'll leave people to discover that for Mm -hmm. themselves. But I think it's extraordinary the way he really... um, positions her as as part of the culture and, and why she was so significant at that time. Mm. I mean, it's something that the Broomfield doc covers as well, but the idea that she, um, to a lot of the black community, just wasn't black enough
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
4: and why that was so significant, particularly at that particular moment. You know, it's interesting that you talk about um, Netflix and the way that, um, if you're thinking about something like the O.J. Simpson doc, yeah. which I think it took eight hours to really paint a very in-depth picture of this particular man but also of, of, of him in the cultural exactly. context and what that meant at, at that time and I think it is it is hard to do something similar in two hours mm-hmm. but I do think Kevin McDonald does a really really good job mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that much about Whitney Houston and I feel like I came away with it with an a very complete sense of who she was, why she was so important, and the various complexities and ambiguities that made her who she was.
2: Yeah, I think that for me, it's more of a celebrity documentary than maybe a pop music documentary or a pop culture documentary. It really is so founded on these questions of who she was and looking at, I think... It has a quite a complicated relationship with the tabloid National Enquirer culture that was so fascinated with her later in life. So there's this turn halfway through the film when she marries Bobby Brown and starts spiralling and drugs. And there's some... What archive footage there is, that, is a, that earlier on is so full of life and you see the real Whitney behind the scenes offstage chewing out Janet Jackson and... and Paula you know, Abdul. And Paula Abdul, uh, sort of the other female solo singers of the time. Later on... We're seeing archive footage that I really didn't feel that I wanted to see of her high as a kite, of her really at the bottom of that roller coaster. And You
4: didn't want to see it because you wanted to remember her in the way that she was when she was younger or you didn't feel like you needed to see it in terms of the structure of that of that documentary?
2: In, in terms of the structure of the documentary, it's perfe- it has its perfect place there. But for me, what is the story here? And there's a moment where... Karen McDonald, who is very much a present director, unlike, say, Asif Kapadia with the Amy documentary, who's invisible. Karen McDonald is actually is in dialogue with his talking heads at times. And Bobby Brown, when he finally comes on the scene, refuses to talk about drugs. And Karen McDonald says, "But we have to because it's part of her life. It's part of her death." And that is Karen McDonald showing his hand. That is the story he wants to tell, rather than other stories about what Whitney Houston, as an icon larger than life, as as an element of the fabric of popular culture of the time that is a different story and maybe one that I'm more interested in. And it made me think of Spike Lee's Michael Jackson documentaries, Mm. which are films full of fire and passion, but also such confidence in talking about the importance of Michael Jackson in in a complicated fashion to black America in the 80s and early 90s and and where he went. Whereas with this one, Karen McDonald does nod to these things, that footage that you mentioned from the BET Awards in the mid-late 80s where she'd be nominated and the entire room would be booing Mm. because she was seen as selling out to the white mainstream. I'd almost want a documentary that focuses more confidently on that, on what she really meant, mm-hmm. as opposed to focusing on the truth behind behind the music. Mm. And I think that that's where it starts to stray into a more ghoulish narrative, in a way. That's interesting. And one piece of footage that I remember from the time, it was actually one of the first things I think I ever watched on YouTube, was footage from her final tour where she can't sing anymore. She can't hit those high notes, those kind of soaring runs uh, for I Will Always Love You. Mm. And that's not what I'd come to a film like this to see. It would either be a celebration or maybe something that gets to grips with a different aspect of her personality and meaning.
4: But if it was just a purely celebratory documentary... Mm. I would feel it was somehow being disingenuous because mm. that was, that's not the whole story. But I agree, you know, Kevin MacDonald has a very particular purpose with this film. Um, it almost turns into an investigative yeah. uh, documentary towards the end and he's really trying to get at the at the why. You mm. know, why what went wrong? What happened with this woman who was... I mean, that early footage of her as a late teenager, she is extraordinary, absolutely magnetic. And when she sings... I uh, just mm-hmm. it's spine tingling but what he's really trying to get at is, is to what went wrong mm-hmm. you know why was it that this that this woman you know why did no one step in um and i think he comes up with a very, very compelling case and and that really is what what sets the two documentaries apart i think yeah. is um the brimfield doc is here are some you know it's slightly kind of rehashing the narrative that we all know about whitney houston whereas kevin mcdonald's it really is getting beneath the skin and saying, why did this happen?
2: And it comes up with so many of these aspects to her biography that you wouldn't know about sexuality, about
4: Absolutely. her
2: appetites, you know, various sorts of appetites, and her relationship with Bob Brown. You do see a lot in there. I just wonder whether it's, while it's dressed up in a very professional and you know, sparkling and slick demeanour, it's actually quite a trashy film in a way. It's satisfying that celebrity instinct to see people rise just to fall. And it doesn't really weave that narrative and that awareness into its own film.
4: Yes, and I think that's something um, because I was, you know, Amy is the obvious comparison, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about Amy while I was watching. Whitney, because when I watched Amy, I felt I felt very uncomfortable. Mm. Partly because it was made so soon after her death, and but there's something in the fabric of that film that makes you as an audience member feel complicit. Mm-hmm. And partly it's because it's coming so soon, but partly because it's really indicting the media culture that yeah. was so fascinated, so ghoulishly fascinated with her and her troubles, and it makes you as an audience member feel voyeuristic. Mm-hmm. And whilst that felt very uncomfortable, I thought that was a real part of Asif Kapadia's, Mm. um, you know, one of his his trump cards there. And at the time when I was watching Whitney, I was feeling that, well, actually, because there's more time has passed since her death, somehow it feels more comfortable and it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel too soon. And it Mm. doesn't feel like you're kind of ghoulishly rehashing things in quite the same way.
2: It's only been six years since she died. That was the thing that surprised me most in a way was just how, you know, how close to the present it was. Mm -hmm. Hannah, you you haven't had a chance to catch this one yet. I realise we've not come to you. Is this at all on your radar?
3: I, You see, I just came back from Edinburgh, mm-hmm. uh, Edinburgh Film Festival, and it was showing there. And a lot of the critics I spoke to didn't really like the film. Mm. They thought it was quite exploitative. Interesting. And as, a, as I say, I, I, I obviously haven't seen the film, so I can't really comment. But one of the complaints I heard from a few different critics was that it brings in a certain element of the narrative. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who... um it's, it's spoiling things in a documentary always seems a bit strange but
2: <laughs> but it's presented quite late in the narrative yeah there's, a, there's yeah, an element a, a very
3: key element that is presented very late in the narrative and then kind of just like dis- dismissed mm-hmm. and also Bobby Brown was involved in the making of this film like quite heavily and mm-hmm. that seems given their relationship it seems quite I think it's disingenuous to have okay. a man like that involved in the production of a film
4: I was quite surprised when the moment when Kevin interviews Bobby Brown on camera. How mm. actually he really doesn't hold back, and he really mm. he really pushes him. And I think there is there's always difficulties when you have something that has the family so so closely involved. But I th- I think Kevin Macdonald it very deftly handles the politics of access mm-hmm. uh, whilst really holding people to account. But also making sure he gets what he needs, mm. and it's a really tough balancing act. And ideally, of course, you would be able to be absolutely objective, and you wouldn't have to have the blessing or or involvement of of people who may in some way be complicit in in, in the issue that you're investigating. But I think he's managed this quite masterfully. Yeah. In the same way, actually, that he you know he has form with black music icons. He made he made the documentary about about Bob Marley, Bob Marley as well, yeah. and mm. I think
3: managed a, a similar sort of sort of trick. It's interesting to get both of these films from white. Well, that a Scottish the, director and a British mm-hmm. director, Nick Broomfield, is British. It's interesting that there's two white men making these films. So that is this. one of those
2: questions that comes out of seeing these two films side mm. by side. Who tells these stories? You talk about journalistic you know, investigation and so on. Who gets to make those investigations? It's yeah. worth talking about.
4: I think so. I think it's a really, really important question. Mm-hmm. And we should all be holding our films and filmmakers mm. accountable and and you know, questioning whether this is the right director to tell this story. I'd say in, in this case, as, you know, because it's not just about telling an artistic story. Mm. It's about being able to manage the politics of access. and And I think that's something he does very well. But obviously, I hope we very much get to a point before too long where, where there is a much wider pool of directors yeah. to choose from who can get that sort of film made.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, we've talked at length about Whitney here and I can, I'm can. i sure the listeners are thinking, how will I know if we really like the film? So mm-hmm. let's put some scores on this, Rowan. Uh, so this is In Anticipation, Enjoyment in Retrospect.
4: OK. So I'd say probably In Anticipation, maybe about a two. Mm-hmm. I wasn't that keen on the idea. Mm-hmm. At the time, I think probably a four, I had a really I had a quite an emotional experience watching it. Mm. And as I say, some of that archive is absolutely fantastic. In retrospect, I'd say and actually particularly after watching the the Nick Broomfield doc, can I say three and a half?
2: How does that fly?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'll, I'll give her in a pass. As okay, a first time, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm learning. I'm learning, guys.
2: <laughs> Great. Well, I think for me, this is a very solid and well-made film. It's just probably not what I really wanted from it. Um, so, really, threes across the board. I think Kevin Macdonald is a, a good filmmaker and has made a, a good film here, but perhaps not the greatest doc of all. <laughs> So that was Whitney.
4: Sorry, I only just got what you said. <laughs> Very good.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Rowan. Uh, so that was Whitney in cinemas this week. Up next, we're talking about Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd in Ideal Home. So, Ideal Home. Steve Coogan plays Erasmus Bramble, the host of a cable cooking show who lives with his partner Paul, played by Paul Rudd. Together, they're the party-throwing power couple of Santa Fe until a young kid, claiming to be Erasmus's grandson, appears on their doorstep. Here's the trailer.
1: I'm concerned that artichoke soup is sad, but if we use this as a base, we can make individual sformato.
2: Come on, sformato in Limoges? Aren't we gay enough?
1: Dear Erasmus, this is your grandson.
2: You have a grandson? It's
1: unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, look, I've had no work done. Where's the father? Well, according to the note, he's in
2: jail. So he's moving in? We can't have a kid. We couldn't even handle that Yorkshire Terrier. Thank God for that coyote. Problem solved. So there's a clip from Ideal Home. The Little White Lies verdict is often crass, generally bewildering. Hannah, who wrote that?
3: Uh, that would be me, the, uh, the Paul Rudd correspondent. Uh, I right. have a lot of strings to my bow, Wacky Phoenix <laughs> correspondent, Johnny Knoxville correspondent, Paul Rudd correspondent.
2: Mm-hmm. So what does the Paul Rudd correspondent think of Paul as Paul you in an Ideal Home? I
3: think Paul Rudd is the saving grace of this film and okay. the only reason that anyone should watch this film is for Paul Rudd, who looks magnificent in it. He has mm-hmm. a great beard going on. He really on. does. Um, <laughs> he wears a lot of leather. He, he's, I mean... I don't want to turn this into like a thirst podcast, but like he looks magnificent in this. He's movie. got some nice shirts as well. Yeah, nice shirts. He's really doing the heavy lifting in this, mm-hmm. and he's the only character kind of given a bit more of a depth mm-hmm. to him. He has this whole kind of subplot about his anxiety, which is um, quite sad and not really something you see talked about in film. You know, um, uh, quite successful men dealing with like deep social anxiety, but it's all played for laughs.
2: It, um, that gets to the heart of some of the tonal problems I had with this film, where it's simultaneously silly, sincere and sarcastic. Yeah. So you say he there's one point in the film where he has a panic attack, but then it's played for laughs after the fact when he overreacts to a panic attack.
3: Yeah, um, <laughs> I was a bit sort of taken aback by it because obviously maybe just this is a UK thing. There is a lot of kind of talk around like men should be able to talk about their feelings and talk about their mental health and mm-hmm. their social anxieties. And in this film, it's just like you're a big Jesse because you can't handle a panic. Attack, and I was so offended by that. On you know, a sort of big budget film for that to be the kind of takeaway gag. Uh, I, uh, yeah, like you say, there's just so much kind of tonal mismatching going on in this film. I went to see it with our intern at the time, um, a couple of months ago, and we came out and we both went. I don't know what I just watched. (laughs) It's a strange, strange movie. Can't decide what it is.
2: It really felt to me like uh, the sort of movie within a movie you'd find in some sort of star satire or Hollywood film. It's a Seinfeld movie. Oh, right, (laughs) Yeah. That's
3: what we call it. You know, that kind of, like, bizarre it turns up as a poster in like 30 Rock or yeah like Seinfeld Mm -hmm. and then you go oh that'd be hilarious if they actually made that and they've made it and it's and
2: they actually did Rowan how did you get on with Ideal Home
3: I mean I have to say
4: I had quite a good time with it
2: (laughs) and why is that Um,
4: well okay so let me just preface that by saying I'm not here to defend the film (laughs) but I did have quite a good time with it and I think partly I've got quite a lot of affection for this kind of um, American comedy that really takes masculinity as as its subject Matter. Mm-hmm. There's a rich vein of them running through from you know the early work of uh, Judd Apatow and, mm-hmm. and 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 Todd Phillips. I'm quite a scholar of this, oh, yeah. <laughs> of, of of this uh, era of uh, of American comedy. And, and this film take you know it, it, its subject is, is masculinity and its fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the fact that it's sort of uh, you know investigating some of those anxieties is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a great time with Steve Coogan's performance. I think. I mean, it's basically uh, it's basically Camp Partridge, but yeah. I had a, but I had a good time. I had a good time with it. But I think it's. Um it's an odd film, a, a film that doesn't really know what it's trying to do. Because on the one hand, I think it thinks it's being quite progressive yeah. and quite liberal. You know, it's got these two characters who are openly gay, and you know, the, all those photos you get at the end. You get mm. this montage of of real life same um, sex couples, same yeah. sex uh, parents, yeah. which leads you to believe that the film is thinks it's doing something that that feels very um, very important and, mm. and and liberal. And yet, at the same time all of the comedy, all of the film's comedy is predicated on the idea that these two gay men, the idea of them being parents is absolutely ludicrous and hilarious because, of course, why would gay men be parents? That's Mm -hmm. just silly. And there is nothing more to their characters than the fact they're gay. Mm -hmm. And they're both made up of this um, dreadful kind of morass of gay stereotypes. It's offensive and it's deeply conservative but at the same time thinks it's doing something progressive. And,
2: and it comes from a, a place, a, quite a personal place. D- writer-director Andrew Fleming has had this screenplay in mind for a, a close to a decade, I, I believe. His reputation is is safe forevermore because he did the craft in the 1990s mm. and has done not much since. He did Hamlet, too, Hamlet 2. Hamlet 2. Dick he did. And Dick as well. Yeah, that was his follow-up, wasn't it? But um, this is based on many of his experiences himself with his partner trying to become a same-sex parent. But it really doesn't come through as as a deeply felt personal history. It seems to be very confused as to whether it's making fun or whether it's a sort of slice of life or whether it's a progressive issues movie. And just, just to pick up on your point of Steve Coogan, I like Steve Coogan a lot. Alan Partridge, Twenty Four Hour Party People, even Philomena, I I thought he was great in that as well. And the trip, of course. Here, this is the worst of Coogan in my mind. He's sort of doing a Kenneth Williams impression almost. It's him really dialing up the camp. I and, mean, of course, this, this character, Erasmus Bramble, with a ridiculous name, is one of his... You know, really in his wheelhouse as this conceited person with no self-awareness and a great inflated sense of self. But Coogan wasn't the right person for this role, really. There's the joke in the trailer, I believe, we heard, which is that he's way too young to have a grandson <laughs> as well.
3: The idea to me that Paul Rudd and Steve Coogan would be together is offensive. Paul Rudd is so far out of Steve Coogan's league, <laughs> so that was my biggest issue. But the thing, the thing is, uh, Steve Coogan's kind of doing this like quasi Nathan Lane in the Birdcage, and I love the yeah. Birdcage.
2: Okay, it's a bit of Birdcage. And
3: yeah. the thing that makes the Birdcage so great is that you really feel for these characters and you feel for their struggle. And it's a similar kind of premise, you know, they're trying to play it straight Mm -hmm. and in this one they're kind of like just trying to be that all-American family but they're gay Mm -hmm. and you really feel for the characters in the birdcage because they feel like real people you know, they and Nathan Lane particularly is preposterous in it, you know, this Mm -hmm. very self-centred very like over-dramatic drag queen but there's some heart and some warmth and that was totally what was lacking for me in I have to say really just Steve Coogan's performance Mm -hmm. because he was so pleased with himself and like every 10 seconds there was a blowjob joke and I was like is this is this necessary is who's this for I can't and there's this whole like recurring joke for the first half hour of the film about the fact they don't know the grandson's name Mm -hmm. which I thought was just really bizarre and I didn't understand why they kept up for as long as they kept it up.
2: It did feel a little bit like the screenplay was just developing as the film was going along which makes me surprised to know this was a project that had been kicking around for some time it just felt very arbitrary where the kid turns up and then there's a scene with them just walking down a corridor saying I guess we have to send him to school then and then the next scene is him going off to school <laughs> and it just seems to be this sort of arbitrary checklist of plots but even though I said this is the worst of Steve Coogan I don't want to lay too much of the blame at his feet because I think that character gets to the heart of what my problems with the film that yeah. it, it so often makes like the, the characters are so caricatured and their life is so caricatured that really it doesn't have any connection to reality for this to be an issue movie or a personal story. There are so many scenes that are just gay men have sex lol or gay men may have gay porn in their house lol and that, it, that makes me so surprised to know that this was somebody writing from experience in a way. Absolutely. And there's Alison Pill who is you know fantastic in Snowpiercer and various other movies Scott Pilgrim. Turns up for maybe two scenes as a child protection services agent a completely thankless role. She just has to turn up and be flabbergasted by the existence of gay men. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame. And even
3: that, like they were kind of like hinting that that was going to be an issue, but then it just went nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I was very, yeah, I, Oh, the, I, this movie exhausts me. I feel like there's just <laughs> so many things going on at once. There's this whole scene where Paul Rudd is sad and he...
2: Oh, <laughs> that must have been terrible for you. <laughs> it? it was very
3: upsetting for me. Uh, but they play the full length of Sufjan Stevens' yeah. For The Fatherless, which is a brilliant song, but they play the full length mm-hmm. of it. It's just so preposterous. And it's kind of like a, a music video. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, why is this here? Why are they doing this? I don't understand any of this. this there's no context of this in the film. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like one of those classic, like they joke about it in um, To America, which is Apple recording the 4th of July. Um, but they talk about To America, the montage, where, the, where you have a montage and yeah. everything's fine after the montage. And they montages. totally do it in this film. And,
2: and lots of meaningful montages as well. And, yeah. yeah.
3: And and the kid's so annoying. That's, that's a disaster. Side, but like the kid is just so annoying. I don't think it's his fault. I think it's just a part written for annoying child. Yeah. And
2: so before we get too negative, Rowan, is there anything <laughs> we're missing here on the more positive side? So just should we just let let it go and enjoy ourselves? Or
3: I mean, I'd love
4: to be able to um, <laughs> offer a a, con- a compelling um, counter argument. I'm not. <laughs> I I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I I enjoyed it, but I can't in good conscience recommend
3: it. <laughs>
2: Well, okay, so let's wrap this up with some scores. Hannah, do you want to go first?
3: Yeah, um, it was a two after I saw the trailer because I thought this film looks like it's been made, you know, 10, 15 years ago. It was a two whilst I was watching the film because I thought this film has been made 10, 15 years ago. And a two in retrospect. Um, right. Yeah, I expect better from Paul Rudd. He's uh, we're, we're not talking at the moment as a result.
2: Well, of that. Ant-Man comes out in a month, so <laughs> we'll be able to, to reassess then. Rowan?
4: I'd agree, too, for anticipation. It feels old-fashioned. Um, yeah. Just the idea of it feels old-fashioned. It feels like something that, that should have been made ten years ago. Mm-hmm. I'd say a three <laughs> for enjoyment. And a two in hindsight
2: Mm -hmm. well for me I like Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd so I was quite excited to see (laughs) this really you know two of those stars on screen I'll turn up for so probably three in anticipation two enjoyment one in retrospect this is just I did not enjoy (laughs) this film much at all and yes it's retrograde it's old fashioned and there's no reason to see it so sorry it's not it's an anti-recommendation from me (laughs) well that was ideal home or a less than ideal home uh, up next, though, we have a classic of New Hollywood cinema for Film Club this week. It's The Deer Hunter.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello,
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
2: One
3: shot is what it's all about. Deer has to be taken with one shot. I don't think about one shot anymore.
2: That was a little clip from The Deer Hunter there, featuring the iconic music Cavatina by the uh, guitarist John Williams. Michael Cimino's Oscar-winning epic was released 40 years ago this year, and it's back in cinemas to celebrate. Back in 78, it was controversial, it was lauded, it won Oscars, it launched the careers of actors including Christopher Walken and Meryl Streep and provided a good notch for Robert De Niro and his career. But how does it hold up? So, Rowan, have we got some listener comments to read out?
4: I have. Callum Sanderson on Twitter says, This is a difficult film to get through. Not in any filmmaking way, it's just heavy. But unlike other heavy stuff like Requiem for a Dream, I'd watch The Deer Hunter again because its message is so
3: important. Hmm. Hannah? Yeah, we've got one from Romulo Berger. This is number three behind Taxi Driver and Raging Bull in the De Niro filmography. De Niro's performance is more subdued here, which makes his internal struggles all the more heart-wrenching.
2: And maybe one more, row.
4: Yeah, Yale Smith says um, about De Niro's performance, um, I think he's very good in it, but it's Christopher Walken's film. My favourite performance of De Niro's is still The Mission.
2: Oh, very interesting. Which I've Mm. never seen. I've never seen The Mission. I've
4: never seen
2: that. And actually, I hadn't seen this one. This was the new Hollywood film that I'd kept in my back pocket until this week. Rowan, you had seen this before,
0: right? I had,
4: probably about about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember much about it. I remembered um, some of the shots of Meryl Streep in her, in her bridesmaid dress. Of mm. course, I remembered the iconic Russian roulette scenes. Mm. But it was interesting. As soon as I switched it on this weekend to watch it again, the very first scene, the very first shot... Brought it all back, that whole first hour that's spent in Pennsylvania with the steelworkers and that interminable wedding. It's long, (laughs) isn't it? It's a very, very long first hour.
2: Growing up, I remember hearing about this film. It's one of my mum's favourite films, for example. But in terms of iconic moments that have seeped into the culture, it really is the piece of music plus the Russian roulette, the very concept of that. I was not expecting this long, detailed, textured, the boys, you know, in, in their element in, in Pennsylvania for the first hour and then that, that wedding, which I believe in the original production plan was only supposed to be 20 minutes, and then Chimino just says, nope, it's an hour long, here you go, take it or leave it. And that's such a good case study for that specifically new Hollywood bravado that filmmakers would have.
4: Absolutely, and that kind of... Um Self indulgence mm-hmm. that people went with and indulged with The Deer Hunter and lost patience with for Heaven's Gate, which came next. Watching it again, I have to say, my my sense was that it felt indulgent. Mm-hmm. It felt too long.
3: I have to say, I found it quite hard work.
2: Mm-hmm. Hannah, was I don't it hard know how you felt.
3: You? Yeah, um, I think it had no business being three hours long. <laughs> there are very few films that I think have any business being over. 90 minutes to be mm-hmm. fair talking three hour films very quickly I watched American Honey by Andrew Arnold recently right. for the first time and that is three hours long and I didn't feel it mm-hmm. this I felt every minute of those three hours right. the fact it takes an hour to get to the titular deer hunt I was just yep. you know kind of waiting and waiting and waiting and yeah I mean I kind of get it maybe Chimino you know, was trying to replicate the kind of um, monotony of war because I, I certainly <laughs> no, no. felt it Wow. but yeah it's a bit of a slog there were things about this that I really liked, uh, having never seen it before, I think Robert De Niro does give this amazingly like nuanced performance, mm. very, very different from his kind of taxi driver, you know, more like terrifying psychopath performances. He's really quiet and sort of mild yeah, almost mild mannered. There were a few moments where he of loses it a bit. And I think Meryl Streep is really great in it as well. She yeah. apparently had no her character was a sort of a side note in the yeah. original script. But then uh Chimino said to her, like, write your own lines, you know, kind of make it more of a thing. And uh, their relationship, relationship between Michael and Linda in the film mm-hmm. I, I thought was really interesting. But yeah, th- three hours of this is just way too much.
2: It's such a, it's such a fascinating film watching this now uh, where we've had such a tradition of Vietnam War movies and this being one of the first ones that really looks at it as Americans being victims of their own war and the, so the Vietnamese are just these almost archetypal, stereotypical characters enacting the war on them. But where it succeeds for me, even, even across these three-hour span is looking at masculinity to, at the extremes mm. or masculinity under extreme pressure. And the idea that you follow these, well, I guess it focuses in on three of the lads in the end who, who go to Vietnam and they go through this horrible torture. And some of them are never coming back from that darkness. And then masculine male friendships, you have to follow your friend into the darkness to try and save them. And there's something there, particularly Christopher Walken's performance, which is incredible and almost now looking at him when there was probably a point, it's almost what people say with Jack Nicholson in The Shining where he started leaning into being crazy and no one could believe that in The Shining he was ever a sane man. (laughs) Christopher Walken since then has played so much into the Walkenness of his personality to just see him as a normal guy who then goes mad and then, Plays into this darkness later on was really revelatory for me, mm.
4: and I agree with our listener um, yeah. that uh, it really does feel like Walken's film. Yeah. It is such a quiet, subdued performance from Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. and, and Walken won won an Oscar for, yeah, supporting for, for supporting supporting actor. To come back to your point about the portrayal of the of the Vietnamese, to me that feels like one of the most problematic. Yeah. And, you know, and it was problematic at the time mm-hmm. uh, in some quarters for some people. But certainly now with with 40 years of hindsight, I think that's quite egregious, actually. Even more
2: so. To so the point where the Russian roulette, the very concept of the Russian roulette was lifted from an entire different screenplay. There's no connection with the Vietnam War for that. Certainly not in POW situations. So they had to craft this fictional situation out of the headlines,
4: yeah, and I think, you know, there's an argument for using dramatic license mm-hmm. to get to a deeper truth. Mm. But I think, you know, this was only released three years after the war had yeah, ended. Exactly. And when something is so close and so embedded in your, in the cultural psyche, I think, straying away from factual accuracy becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. And especially when you do it in in this sort of um, manner, mm-hmm. when the North Vietnamese are portrayed as so cruel and sadistic, yeah. I think it's a real issue.
2: It is a real problem, actually. And this came out the same year as Coming Home. So this was the year where those sorts of melodramas started to happen. And the Oscars that year, The Deer Hunter won Picture and Director, as Sporting Actor and a few others, Coming Home sort of split the rest. And it's interesting to just note that this was a time where Hollywood and cinema was trying to figure out how to tell these stories, and the deer hunter just seems to be the big slab of <laughs> of violence, of extreme emotions, of men on the brink and it never really finds the quiet moments again, I don't think, even though Rob Nero is very subdued. I find Rob Nero a little bit Distracting in this because they've lightened his hair to make him look more like a Russian American than an Italian American. So he has a blonde beard. I we're,
3: didn't notice that. I just kept thinking how hot you were all the way through. I mean, well, beard's uh, one of your key key areas of <laughs> interest. Exactly,
2: it is. Yeah, but you know, uh, this is peak De Niro, This era. I'd like to shout out one particular performance. It's John Casale, who we've talked about on this podcast a few times, particularly with Dog Day Afternoon. He was only in five films before he died, and this was the last one. He was actually gravely ill on set. And I think that's a connection to why Meryl Streep is in the movie and why she was there. She wanted to be in it to be with him.
3: Well, they were they romantic were, partners yeah, at the were, time. They were, yeah. She nearly walked off the film because they wanted to sack Carl Zally because he was so gravely ill at the time of filming. And she said, if, if you sack him, I'm, I'm walking. And mm-hmm. Shamina said the same thing. I think De Niro said the same thing. Yeah. I think Meryl Streep said that De Niro paid for uh, Karzai's insurance. because yeah, he was uninsurable, yeah. That, for me, is a really interesting kind of like back behind the scenes story of this camaraderie mm-hmm. between the actors who are yeah. all kind of really good friends and then wanting to make this movie together because they were all friends. Mm-hmm. And that that's almost more compelling than the story on screen. You're like, oh, these guys have all just loved each other and wanted to make a movie together. Yeah. He's brilliant in it. I mean, I, they shot all his scenes first because he was so ill, and I think he died just after they finished filming. Exactly,
2: yeah. Um, I
3: think even
4: before they finished filming, really,
3: that adds a real, um, a real poignancy to it,
4: mm.
2: doesn't
3: it? When,
4: when when you watch it now,
2: and what an incredible run, really, the five films that he made while he was live were the two Godfather movies, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Conversation.
4: Wow, but, and The Deer Hunter. And then the I Hunter.
2: mean. And then he was in archive footage in The Godfather 3, but we don't need to mention that (laughs) too strongly.
3: But to give such a good performance when he must have been sort of, you know, really at death's door is incredible.
2: And such a different actor. Do you think about 70s sort of Italian-American actors, the Pacinos and Mm -hmm. the Neros, these big personalities? Casale is so nervy and thin and and in in all of his performances, so frail and a bit ambiguous in his performances. And it was, you know, such a, a loss that this was his final film.
3: I'd highly recommend, if anyone's going to go and watch The Deer Hunter now, I would recommend you do it on Amazon because it's on Amazon Prime for free. And they have this X-ray feature which gives you trivia about the film. And there are some (laughs) great facts about this film that I was not aware of whilst I was watching it. So there's a wonderful moment when they're in Vietnam and... I think it's John Savage who's screaming, there are rats in here, Michael. There are rats in here, Michael. That wasn't scripted. That isn't him shouting at Robert De Niro. That's him shouting at Marco Cimino because he was terrified of rats and there were rats in the water. Mm -hmm. And there's another fact later on about the elk that they were... Not a deer. It was an elk they were shooting with in the second after the return from Vietnam, deer hunt they go on. And um, it was an elk they trained and the elk was really difficult to work with. This is the kind of trivia that I live for and Amazon is a great source of information. So I would highly recommend if you do want to spend three hours of your life with uh, Robert De Niro and yeah. Christopher Ock and do it on Amazon. Do it with X-Ray. I, I,
2: I read somewhere that that elk was also in a particularly famous 1980s advert in America. So <laughs> oh yes. So if you want to track the, the history of the elk.
3: It's a very like convincing deer. I mean this, uh, this elk really goes for it in the movie. The
2: transformations the elk goes through. I mean maybe that inspired De Niro to go on and make Raging Bull and transform himself. Who knows? <laughs> So Chimino, just to get back to him, he just seems like such a... This is particular, this case study of of New Hollywood extravagance and indulgence, the idea that he's hired by a major studio to make this movie. He goes away, falls out with the the screenwriter, says he wrote it all himself. Later on, falls out with the editor, says he edited it all himself. They wanted it to be two hours. He gave him a a three-and-a-half-hour cut that he then only cut down to three hours. He went over budget, shot over schedule, (laughs) etc., and then this film still comes out. So in some ways it's a miracle these films are made. But I do wonder in our sort of today where all filmmakers find it hard to make movies, is it something quaint, something nostalgic, something frustrating to see filmmakers given such licence 40 years ago?
4: There's something quite exciting about mm-hmm. it. You know, both a time when filmmakers were able to have such control and there was such, you know, the cult of the filmmaker, cult of the auteur that just doesn't exist now Mm -hmm. so I think there's something quite exciting about that but I do think it's so interesting how over the years I think the reputations of both the Deer Hunter and uh, Heaven's Gate have Mm -hmm. almost switched and Heaven's Gate is the film now that feels like it's screened more regularly Mm -hmm. and has been through a sort of a positive reassessment and the Deer Hunter the one at the time that was really lauded won five Oscars, now is the one that feels almost more more mm-hmm. self indulgent
2: exactly in heaven's gate the film that forced united artists into bankruptcy yeah. sort of ended the new hollywood era where producers started realizing and studio heads realized we should probably not give the filmmakers such such freedom and then was re-released a couple of years ago restored and Reappraised.
3: When Heaven's Gate came out, though, there were a lot of critics who had liked The Deer Hunter who then went back and actually said they didn't like The Deer Hunter because yeah. they hated Heaven's Gate so much, which I think that's an incredible power that Cimino has to make journalists go back and retract their positive statements <laughs> about his films because they hated his new movies so
2: much. But this is one of those one of those fascinating films where maybe growing up we see these films as canonised, but then you mm. go back and you see there was a split. The positive reviews from Roger Ebert, etc., but then Andrew Sarris, Pauline Kael, Jonathan Rosenbaum didn't like this film. They saw it as kind of empty and hateful in some mm-hmm. ways. So it's interesting to reassess the canon in that way, go back and see what people said when films weren't just accepted in the way they may be now. Especially
3: within the Vietnam canon as well. That you know There are so many films that came out of the war immediately and then in the sort of five, ten years afterwards. And for me, this one, I... Don't know how much I like it compared Mm -hmm. to sort of you know the platoons and the apocalypse nows and the full metal jackets of the era. Mm -hmm. I think it is very long and there's not a lot of reward for how long it is. Mm -hmm. You know, it is just well, as Callum said, it it's it's heavy. It's very there's this sinking feeling you get when it starts and it doesn't let up. And it's not one I would ever be in a hurry to go back to. And again, the the way it Deals with the Vietnam War. I think all the scenes in Vietnam, it could have gone without them. I think it would have probably been a more interesting film if they literally just had the scenes of them before they left before and the scenes and after. after they came interesting.
0: back. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, listeners, you can tell us how wrong we are at the usual uh, addresses at LW Lies on Twitter, truth of movies at TCRLander.com over email, or at the podcast page at LW slash podcast. So next week, It's a bumper week, Hannah, isn't it?
3: It is, yeah. So we have
2: Skyscraper, which is Dwayne Johnson doing Die Hard in an even taller Skyscraper. (laughs) We have Incredibles 2, Brad Bird's Pixar sequel. First Reformed, speaking of New Hollywood, we have Paul Schrader, Double Bill, really. First Reformed, his new film and film club, is Paul Schrader's 1992 Light Sleeper.
0: Where was I? All right, so if there is no God, then how can we conceive of it? You know? I mean, the idea of God presupposes the existence of God. You know, that's the ontological argument. That's Anselm. It's, that's 1200 or 1400. I'm not sure. Going. No, don't leave. Don't. Stay, stay. Listen, this is a good part. So, it, if the idea of God is implanted by God, the sensus divinititis, the sense of the divine, you know, then what is the role of human thought? You know? Not faith everybody wants to talk it's like a compulsion my philosophy is you got nothing to say don't say it they figure you can tell a dd anything things they would never tell anyone else of course they're stoned to start do you think that all of our thoughts are on a pre-recorded tape and planted in our brain at birth and then they just play
2: <laughs> i do so i haven't seen this one this seems to be a bit of a deeper cut in his filmography starring Willem Dafoe, Susan Sarandon, and you said a young Sam Rockwell. Young
3: Sam Rockwell and David Spade, for some reason. Okay. He was a thing then. It was the 90s. But yeah, young Sam Rockwell playing a character called Jealous. I've never seen this film. <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm back here next week with you, Michael, yeah. and I can't wait to talk about At it. We least you'll
2: see. Four films. So let us know what you think about Light sleeper. So, any other business, Hannah? Any Little White Lies business we should talk about?
3: Yeah, well, it's an exciting summer ahead for Little White Lies. Mm -hmm. We are going to be down at Somerset House, uh, involved in their new exhibition, which is called "Print Tearing It Up," and is a Uh celebration of print journalism. So, we'll be down there from well the last week of August with a whole exhibition where you can come in. Uh, meet some of us we'll be down there and we're doing a zine workshop where you can come and make your own Arnold Schwarzenegger zine. Great. And we're doing a talk. And more excitingly for listeners of the podcast, we're doing a live podcast uh-huh. with special celebrity guests Ooh. and special host who is TBC. I'm not <laughs> sure who it's going to be. Might be Michael, might be James. Who knows? Extra Crazy special world host. of uh, truth and movies. <laughs> but yeah, you can buy tickets for that now online on the Somerset House website. And we would love to see some of you down there.
2: Fantastic. Thank you, Hannah. Rowan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank is you so there so much anything... for
3: having me. What a pleasure.
2: It's been a pleasure. Is there anything in the future that you'd like to make a mention?
4: Well it seems only fair because both our films today Ideal Home and Whitney make passing reference to Kevin Costner Um, They do do, (laughs) um, It it seems only fair to mention uh, you and I uh, run a programming collective called MISC Films Um, We're putting on a Kevin Costner mini-season in August We're showing A Perfect World the film that Clint Eastwood directed Mm -hmm. and we're showing Bull Durham and we're doing them over, over two weeks at two venues in London and it's a celebration of that era when kevin costner was really at the peak of his mm-hmm. of his powers before he became associated with with kind of indulgence
2: so we can you can find information for those two screenings where
4: oh you can find them at miscfilms.com and that's m-i-s-c-f-i-l-m-s.com
2: right they're both in august both in august perfect world 7th, ball durham
4: 7th and 21st
2: fantastic and i suppose that just leaves me to say thank you once more to hannah and Rowan for being with me today
4: Thanks Thank so
2: you. much. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.